Our Father, as we come to your word today, we ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to illuminate this text for us, help us to understand this maybe complicated, difficult text, and uh, Lord, we pray that we would hear your voice and that we would be changed uh, by what we read today, by what we study today, that we would grow in the likeness of Christ for his glory. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. And if you need a Bible, we do have some Bibles out in the foyer. If you have one of those Bibles, we're on page 8. And we've taken about six months to get to page 8, which, uh, which might sound kind of, uh, kind of crazy, but uh, obviously the text of Genesis has been incredibly rich and incredibly... Um, Lively. It's just been a, a good study, a lot, of, a lot of good stuff in here. We're going to be covering verses 10 to 26 today. Now, if you were here, uh, or to 32, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we started off with a question. And the question that we started off with last week was, can sinful man prevent God's purposes from being fulfilled? And of course, the answer to that question is no. And so you might expect, since this is the same chapter that we're covering, that the next question is kind of a follow-up question. And the question that we're going to be kind of launching from today and looking at today is what's going to prevent God's purposes from being thwarted? What is the guarantee that God will work out his sovereign purposes? That's a tough question tough question to answer, but I do believe that our passage here today has answers. And if you've already taken a glance at the chapter, the passage that we'll be looking at, you'll see that we have come to yet another genealogy. Now, before you let out a a collective moan, which believe me, I understand. I thought, oh man, another genealogy. But, But we've got a while to go until we get to the next one. But remember that every word of scripture is in there for a reason. God has left these things to us for our betterment, for for our benefit. And so when we come to a genealogy, we come with an anticipation and with uh, an expectation that God does have something to say to us, even in a genealogy. I know that the tendency when you come to a genealogy and, and personal study is to just skip over it, but that's actually where you need to slow down in your personal study and really examine the text and see what's in there. So today, we're going to be covering uh, this genealogy and the introduction to uh, the forefather of the faith, Abraham. So we start, uh, if you remember, uh, Shem was one of the sons of Noah. He's one of the sons of Noah. Noah had three sons. Shem's line was going to be blessed, if you remember that. That's what what Noah had prophesied over Shem. Ham's line, conversely, was, was cursed. So we're going to continue tracing the line of Shem today. So we start with verse 10. We're going to look at verses 10 to 26 to start. We read, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu, and Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived, uh, when Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag, and Reu lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor, and Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. 
I think I did better with this genealogy than I did with the last one. I think there were maybe fewer names. Yeah, the difficulty when you come to a genealogy, one of them is that uh, some of the names are difficult to pronounce, but stick with it. Give it your best effort. One of the things that you do when you come to a genealogy is you look for things that are repeated. There are often themes that will be repeated throughout a genealogy. For example, in the genealogy that we saw back in chapter 5, what we read is person after person after person, it says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. So that was the theme of chapter 5. In this case, we see something else being repeated over and over again in our text. Did you catch it? I don't think you could have missed it. It's that each of these people had other sons and daughters. Now, you might ask, what's the point of that? I would say that's not the the central point of the text, but it's important to our text in the sense that it tells us what's going on in the world. What it's telling us is that as the people are dispersing and filling the earth as God had commanded and kind of forced their hand, if you remember, with uh, the city of Babel, uh, as they're spreading out, they are multiplying exponentially. And so what you have through this genealogy is an indication that the world probably has hundreds of thousands of people in it by the time we get to the end of it. There are a lot of people on the face of the earth. We're only seeing a handful of names, and we're seeing that they have other sons and daughters. How many? We don't know. Probably a lot, because they, they lived fairly long lives, and, uh, and the earth was populated. So uh, the point of all this is that, or one of the points of all this, is that the earth was very populated. Now, it's easy when you come to this to become discouraged with a passage like this, but there is a message to the madness. There is something in there for us. In fact, there are two messages, two primary themes that we're going to see in our passage today. And one of them, the first one, is that God's plans and purposes are unfolding even when on the surface it looks like they're not. God's plans and God's purposes are unfolding. They are being fulfilled, even when on the surface, from a human perspective, it looks like they are not. After dispersing the people from Babel, we see generations pass, multiple generations between, uh, yeah, verses 10 and 26. There are all these generations that pass. And what we see is that there is not a single action during this entire time that's attributed to God. It seems from a human perspective like he's silent. It seems from a human perspective like he's just stepped away from humanity. Now people will say, you know, I I sure wish that God would work in our world like he did in the times of the Bible. You know, if you look through the Bible, you see God doing all these amazing things like freeing his people from Egypt by sending plagues upon Egypt. And then right after that, he parts the Red Sea for the Israelites so that they can escape the Egyptians. And you get the impression that God was just constantly doing one thing, one amazing thing after another, after another, after another. But what you have to understand here is that the the biblical authors are just hitting the fast forward button of history. They're, they're, they're jumping to the next main event that God does, that God's involved in. And it's not that he's not involved in between. It's that the major events, the mountaintops, if you will, uh, are, are spaced out quite significantly. There are a lot of years that go by. In this case, the, the lowest estimate I would put on this is there are 350 years that pass, and it looks like God is absent. 350 years, and it looks like God's being absent. So if you think that, uh, you know, if you wish that God would do this kind of stuff, you know, the stuff that he does in the Bible in our day and age, well, maybe you haven't lived long enough (laughs) because a lot of time can pass by. The other thing to keep in mind is that God is still working in the world. In fact, every time somebody is born again, that's a miracle. It's a miracle when somebody's born again. It is literally an act of God. It is God imparting life to somebody who is dead. It's taking what is spiritually dead and putting spiritual life in it. That is an an active work of God. And so the danger is, because that, that happens fairly frequently, the danger is that you come to mistake the miraculous for the mundane. 
Sometimes there are lessons between the lines, so to speak, and this passage definitely gives us one of them, and it's an important lesson. The lesson is that even when it seems like God is silent, even when it seems like God has stepped away, even when it seems like God is doing nothing about a situation, His plan is nevertheless unfolding. His purposes are working toward fulfillment. And that's an important lesson for us because sometimes it seems like God is quiet. Sometimes it seems like God is inactive. Sometimes as you look around the world around us, it seems like the wicked are prospering. And you might wonder, God, where are you? What are you doing? God is there. He's aware of everything that's going on. He cares about what's going on. And he is sovereignly working out the fulfillment of his plans and purposes, even when it seems like he's not. See, that's from a human perspective when we think that he's not. From God's perspective, he is constantly and steadily working in time toward the fulfillment of his sovereign purposes. One of the things that you should notice in this genealogy is that the ages of these people aren't that long in comparison to what we saw back in chapter 5. Back in chapter 5, we see people living for much longer. Uh, Canaan lived 910 years. Uh, Mahalalel lived 895 years. Jared lived 962 years. And so then you come to this passage today, and you see that these people are living significantly shorter lives, given the fact that no action is attributed to God during this whole passage, we also need to understand that there is no evidence of anyone during this time period turning to God. There is no evidence of anybody during this time period living with faith in God. Instead, What archaeology attests to and what the Bible attests to is that paganism was spreading. Pagan worship was proliferating. That's what people were choosing. So, is is there a correlation between the shortening of life and the absence of God and the the proliferation of, of paganism? Perhaps. But we also have to keep in mind that back in Genesis chapter 1, there was a canopy of water that God had in the sky that doesn't appear to be there after the flood. In fact, we would, we would speculate, I suppose, that the, the canopy of water was used to create the flood. And so it's possible that once the canopy of water in the sky was gone, that the harmful UV rays and, and radiation from the sun caused the people to have shorter lives. That's, that's definitely a possibility. The text doesn't tell us exactly why their lives are shorter, but there are some significant differences. And if you look at the text of Genesis, kind of like a sandwich, where, where the, the first genealogy that we saw back in chapter 5 is your bottom piece of bread, then you have the flood, and then you have this genealogy. You see that on the other side of the flood, there are some drastic, drastic differences. So maybe life is shorter because of the absence of the canopy in the sky. Maybe life is shorter because the people aren't turning to God and sin is proliferating. Paganism is proliferating. We don't know. But keep in mind that these people didn't stop believing that there were spiritual forces. They didn't stop believing that there were higher powers than themselves. No, these people believed in gods, in lesser gods. They just chose to believe in these mythical and imaginary gods that they would invent because that is mankind's inclination, is to invent gods that are a lot like us, that reflect our values, that let us get away with what we want to get away with, and we choose to worship those gods. These people wanted gods that could be manipulated. These people wanted gods who didn't put such heavy demands on its adherents. 
They wanted to live life by their own terms. That is humanity's fallen condition. We want to live life by our own terms. We're not so concerned with obedience to God, and so what we do is we create a God who will let us live in accordance with our own terms. And so these people, like people today, invented gods who were different from the one true living God. And it's, an, it's important to realize that this is not a case of them not knowing about God. Romans chapter 1 attests to the fact that nobody has an excuse because nature attests to God. Nature attests to the attributes of God. It's not a case of them not knowing about God. They knew about God, but they did not know God. And there's a huge difference between those two positions. They knew about God. Keep in mind also, these are descendants of Shem. Do you think, based on Shem's experience, don't you think it's highly probable that he passed on the story of what he had personally witnessed? That he had been granted mercy by God and delivered from this worldwide flood? Don't you think that that story was passed on to his descendants and to his descendants' descendants, to generations that followed as long as he lived? I think that's, that's entirely uh, likely. But instead of believing in the God who granted mercy, and instead of believing in the God who has wrath against sin, the people did what we see in Romans 1. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Though the truth was known to them, though they had every reason to believe in God, and they knew somebody who had personally witnessed the saving power of God, they turned away from God. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And so we need to understand that these are not innocent people. These are people who have made a conscious decision to turn their hearts away from God and to serve and worship and desire and pursue lesser gods. They had every reason to believe in God. They had every reason to worship God, and yet they chose lesser gods. Gods who were powerless to forgive, gods who were powerless to act, gods who were powerless to redeem, gods who were powerless to reconcile fallen man with God. And I'm sure that as generations moved further and further and further away from Noah, the story of the flood did continue to be passed down. That's why we see it in so many cultures around the world today. So many ancient cultures held on to this, this story of a worldwide flood. You know, to this day, you can find it in some cultures. But what happened as it got passed down is it got changed. It got twisted. It got distorted. And this isn't like the telephone game where, you know, you get a, a bunch of people together and you send a message around and by the time it gets to the end, it's something different. No, this is something that was very deliberate. This is something that was intentional. Instead of attributing the flood to the one true living God, they attributed it to other spiritual forces. They attributed it to their own gods. They would change out the characters in the story, so to speak, to fit their own desires and their own values and their own worldview. And so the story was passed on, but the story was distorted. And it's not that they just forgot it. It's not that they accidentally changed the details. It was intentional. The truth about God was being suppressed. And you know what that means? It means that fake news is not a new phenomenon. Fake news isn't something that's isolated to our culture. This is something that we see from the dawn of civilization, from early, early ancient history. These people knew about God, but they did not know God. And the difference between knowing God and knowing about God is as different as life and death. It's as different as life and death. And if you're not exactly sure how great the difference is between life and death, guys, here's what I want you to do. If you don't know how great the difference is between life and death, try bringing your wife a bouquet of dead flowers and see how she reacts. Now, you might not want to do it this week because it's going to be really cold this week and being out in the doghouse might you know, be dangerous for your health. But 
the following week, whenever you do it, if you do it, make sure you bring some living flowers as well. The difference between knowing God and knowing about God is that different. Knowing about God is dead flowers. Knowing God is living flowers. The difference between knowing about God and knowing God is the difference between being a starving man who knows where to find water and food and nourishment, and yet you choose not to go, and being a man who knows where to find it, who's starving and knows where to find it, and he goes. That's the difference between life and death. That's the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. So you know about God. Great. So does Satan. Satan knows about God. Satan believes in God, and he trembles at the thought of standing before him. You know what his word says. You know what God's word says. That's fantastic. So does Satan. And in fact, he would, use, he would try to use Scripture as a weapon against Jesus as Jesus was being tested in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. You say you're a really good person, a really moral person. Fantastic. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So you believe in God. It's not enough. You believe, you know, you know what his word says. It's not enough. You're a good person. It's not enough. It's not enough. Knowledge about God without yielding to him is dead knowledge. It's dead flowers. It is worthless. Let's imagine for a moment that you were able to travel back in time to just a couple years ago. And let's say that a couple years ago there was a a huge lottery. I think there was. There always is. Every year there's some lottery that, you know, goes, makes people go crazy. Uh, So so you go to to a time that was just a couple days before a huge lottery a couple years ago, and you happen to remember what the winning numbers for this lottery were. And you're thinking, wow, man, am I ever going to to make off well in, in this situation? But you don't buy a ticket. You don't buy a lottery ticket. Instead, what you do is you wait until the next day, the day after the lottery, and you call the lottery commission and you let them know, hey, beforehand I knew what the winning numbers were. And so they say, okay, did you buy a ticket? No, but, but I knew what the winning numbers were. So what? You knew what the winning numbers were, but you didn't act on it. So what? That's the difference between knowing God and knowing about God, but suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And so what we see is that hundreds of years pass where people are suppressing the truth about God. Archaeology attests to it and Scripture attests to it. Paganism was flourishing for hundreds of years, for longer than the United States has been a country if you think about it in terms of that. But while man was busy suppressing the truth about God, God was nevertheless active. His plans were unfolding. God is always working out His eternal plans and purposes, even when from our perspective it looks like He's not. But here's the question. How is God going to guarantee the fulfillment of His plans and purposes? Job said, God, your your plans and purposes can't be thwarted. And he's right. Scripture attests to the fact that God's plans and purposes can't be thwarted. But when you go hundreds and hundreds of years where nobody is turning to God, how can God ensure that his plans and purposes will not be thwarted? What if it happened in our country where all of a sudden all all the Christians were killed or or raptured or, or who knows? Just, we were gone. And there was nobody faithful in this country. Let's say in the world. Would, would, would that thwart God's plans and purposes? The answer that Scripture gives us is no. The question that we have to ask is what's going to guarantee that God's plans and purposes won't be thwarted? And the answer is found in the difficult doctrine of election. 
And that's what we're going to see in the life of Abraham. He's actually a picture of sovereign election. So let's continue looking at verses 27 to 32. We read, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram took And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, and uh, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But... When they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Not only does our passage today clearly teach us that God is still working out his sovereign plans and purposes, even when it seems like he's not. More significantly, perhaps, it shows us that God is always preserving His promises. God is faithful to His promises. In this case, one of the things that we're, that we're tracing in this genealogy is the promised seed from back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God promised Adam and Eve when they fell into sin that He would send an offspring through the woman's seed who would crush the head of the serpent. And so one of the things that we've been tracing through all these genealogies is the preservation of that promise. This is the line through which the nation of Israel would come. And of course, therefore, this is also the line through which the Messiah the anointed one, the promised one, Jesus Christ, would come as well. Now, breaking down the book of Genesis in terms of how much stuff is being covered and how little space, in 11 chapters we have covered roughly, give or take, 2,000 years of human and redemptive history. 2,000 years roughly, give or take, I don't know, 300 years or so, have passed between Adam and where we are in our text today. And that took 11 chapters. And what we're going to cover for the next 14 chapters is the life of Abraham. So what we have to understand is that this genealogy has served as something of a bridge between Noah and Abraham. And Abraham is one of the more significant characters in the entire Bible. Of course, Jesus is the most significant character. I don't think anybody would argue against that. But you would also say that you know Moses is significant, David is significant, uh, maybe Isaiah was significant. There was uh, there were some very significant people, but Abraham is the father of the faith. That's what Paul refers to him as in in his writings. He's the father of the faith in the sense that he sets the example for what biblical faith looks like. Anybody who has biblical faith is following in the pattern of Abraham, and thus they would be called a a child of Abraham. So this has been a a bridge to one of the most important characters in the entire Bible, maybe the second most important character in the entire Bible, certainly the most important character in the book of Genesis. Now, what we saw back in the first nine verses last week is that the citizens of Babel, the people in Babel, sought to make their name great, They were going to make their name great by building this tower up to heaven, becoming God's equal. They were going to make their name great. They would be remembered for for all of human history as the people who made humanity equal to God. They thought they were going to make their name great, but God will promise to make Abraham's name great. The people of Babel built their city on the strength of their flesh, on human effort, But God would build the nation of Israel by His own grace. And despite the weakness of the flesh of His people, and despite the inclination of His people to wander, to backslide, to turn away from God. According to Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, 
when he's about to be martyred, when he's about to be, to be stoned to death, God, he tells us that God appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. And you might wonder, well, where's, where's Mesopotamia? Mesopotamia is the same as Babylonia. And of course, you rec- recognize Babylonia as identical to Babylon. That's where Abraham was when God appeared to him and called him. Now, you might ask, what were the people in, in Mesopotamia, in Ur of the Chaldeans, what were the people there doing? And was, was Abraham doing anything different? Was Abraham serving God? No. Was Abraham worshiping God? No. Was Abraham faithful to God in any sense? No. Was Abraham seeking God? No. No, no, no. No, this was a very, very pagan place where he was living. Nobody was seeking God. Nobody was pursuing God. Rather, they believed in their own gods. People in Mesopotamia believed that each region would have, or, or territory, would have its own specific gods. And so what you'd have is, you know, this, this place over here, they'd be worshiping the sun god. This place over here, they'd be worshiping the god of the sea. This place over here, they'd be worshiping the god of the, the land or the crops or whatever. And in Abram's case, he's worshiping the moon god called Nana. The moon god Nana. And in the midst of his idolatry, in the midst of him making strides on the path to hell, God appears to Abraham. And he calls Abraham. He chose Abraham. And you might say, well, why did God choose to call Abram instead of any of these other people? Why didn't he call Eber? Why didn't he call Shelah? Why didn't he call Peleg or Reu? Why didn't he call any of these people throughout human history? And that's a question, those are questions that can only be answered by God. Those are questions that only God can answer. All we know is that God chose Abram from eternity And that God chose Abram not because he looked down the corridor of time and said, you know, Abram's going to be a really faithful guy. That's not the way it works. Instead, he chose Abram in accordance with his own perfect counsel of his own sovereign will. Man could not reconcile himself to God. Man could not work his way to God. But what is impossible by human effort is possible by the grace of God. Abraham was not chosen by God because of the great things he would do. God didn't look through time and see, you know, this is what what Abraham will do, so I'll pick him. Rather, the reason that Abraham was willing to do all these great things is because God called him, because God had set his grace upon him, because God had chosen him. God chooses people by grace and not by merit. It's not because there was anything Worthy in Abraham, it's because God is worthy and he's able to use broken vessels. And so he chooses people by grace and not by merit. And I can't think of any better news because if he was choosing people by merit, I'd be the last person he'd pick. Further, God doesn't grant grace because a person seeks him. That would be really bad news. That would be absolutely horrible news for us because Romans chapter 3, verse 11 tells us that no one seeks God, not even one. And yet, Scripture admonishes us that if you want to find God, you will find Him when you seek with all of your heart. Ah, something of a paradox there. Sam, you like that, don't you? Paradox. How do you resolve the tension between those two things that nobody seeks for God And yet the way to find God is to seek Him with all your heart. This tension is resolved in understanding that God doesn't grant grace because we seek Him. Rather, if a person seeks Him, it's because God has granted him the grace to see his utter despair, to see his utter sinfulness, to see how desperately he needs a Savior, to see how he cannot be reconciled to God through his own efforts, but that he needs somebody to be a substitute for him before God. That's what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The human tendency is not to seek God. 
The human inclination is not to worship God or to desire God. It's to invent gods. It's to create lesser gods. It's to create gods that reflect ourselves and our desires and our values. Because really what humanity wants to do, apart from God's grace, is worship the self. You might say, this doctrine of election seems so unfair. In fact, for many years, that that was my objection. So what do you say? Election seems so unfair. I would say, you're right, but probably not in the sense that you're thinking. Because if you're going to say, you know, something doesn't seem fair, what you're appealing to is a higher justice. You're appealing to a higher morality and saying there's something else that we have to appeal to. And so if you're going to appeal to justice, you have to ask, what does justice require be done with sinners? And we don't like that answer. The answer is, justice, perfect justice, demands that sinners be punished. And so it is unfair, but probably not in the way that you might originally think. And maybe you wonder, well then, why doesn't God save everyone? Why doesn't God save everyone? And the answer is, again, that's something that only God can answer. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. So that tells us two things. Number one, God doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't give us all the answers to all the questions that we might come up with. There are things that are secret. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But then it also says, The things that are revealed belong to us. So now you have to ask, what has been revealed about God? What's been revealed about His purposes? What's been revealed about God is that He's good and He cannot do evil. What's been revealed about God is that He is perfectly holy, He is perfectly righteous, and He is perfectly just in all of His ways. And so, Whatever the answer to that question is, it's in accordance with those attributes of God that Scripture has revealed to us because those things belong to us. Those are things that God has revealed. God is good and God is just, whatever the answer to that question might be. But election ensures that God's plans and purposes will not be thwarted. Election ensures that God's plans and purposes will be fulfilled. Abraham was just like everybody else in his culture. He was walking a crowded path to hell with everybody else, everybody on one street going in one direction to the same location, and God saw Abraham and picked him. Why? That's God's, that's God's issue. That's God's sovereign choice. But Abraham was not pursuing God. He was not seeking God. And God chose him out of all the people in the world. However many thousands or hundreds of thousands of people existed at this point, God chose him out of all the people in the world to trust him and to follow him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. God's sovereignty over salvation is good news. Because what it means is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've believed until this point. God is able to save anybody. God is able to open the eyes of anybody's hearts to receive the gospel. Any, anyone, even the chief of sinners. Now we all know that Abram would be renamed Abraham. And this pagan idolater named Abraham would become the father of the faith. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 says this. It says, It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You'll remember the time when some Jews came to Jesus claiming to be the sons of Abraham, and he said, No, you're not, because you don't believe. So they thought, you know, it's a, it's a genealogical thing. Jesus said, No, being a son or a child or a daughter of Abraham is a spiritual issue. If you believe as Abraham did, you are a son or daughter. Of Abraham. We need to understand that faith does not earn righteousness. That is to say, righteousness is not the wage 
for faith. It doesn't earn it. It's not something that you deserve. How many of you guys are trying to, to earn your Christmas gifts this year? Uh, paradox, right? Yeah, you can't earn a Christmas gift because a gift is freely given. Faith doesn't earn righteousness. Instead, faith receives righteousness. Faith receives righteousness. It opens the heart to receive the righteousness. It believes that righteousness has been provided and acts accordingly. And acts accordingly. That's that's the most important part, perhaps, in, in terms of when you're examining your life, is to see, am I acting accordingly? Faith does not earn righteousness, it receives righteousness, and it acts accordingly. Now, as we look at the life of Abram, I'll just warn you in advance in case you never heard the story, he doesn't obey God perfectly, but he does obey God, however imperfectly it may be. He does obey God. What we see here in verses 31 and 32 is that while God had called Abram and his wife Sarai to follow him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, Abram, instead of immediately just going, he goes home and he gets his dad and he gets his nephew and they come along with him. And there's actually a consequence to his disobedience. What you see in verse, uh, verse 31 is that they were, they were headed out to the land of Canaan, but they settled in the land of Haran. So, he obeyed God, but he obeyed God imperfectly. That's where the beauty of grace is really seen. The Apostle Peter instructs us to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And maybe the concept of election makes you uneasy. Maybe the concept of election makes you uncomfortable. Maybe it gives you a sense of anxiety or distress. But the thing is, the word election shows up throughout Scripture. The word chosen shows up throughout Scripture. And as students of the Bible, as people of God who love His Word, we can't just say, well, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with this doctrine, and so I'm just going to ignore it, even though that, that might be the easier thing to do. But secondly, I would say, you know what type of person worries about election? You know what type of person worries about whether or not they are elect and whether or not God chose them and called them? The elect. There's only one type of person that worries about it. There's only one person that is concerned with it, and that is the elect. People who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, they don't believe in a God. They, 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 they choose to ignore the reality of a God who calls and chooses people. So, make your calling and election sure. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And that has to start by asking yourselves, do I really believe? I mean, do I really believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior? Do I really believe those things? Do you really believe that Jesus died in your place? Do you really believe that as He was on the cross, your sins were cast upon Him? Do you really believe that He bore the wrath of God against your sins in your place as your substitute? Do you really believe that? And do you believe that Christ's righteousness was in exchange imputed or transferred to you? And that right now you are in Christ, that you have His righteousness because on the cross it was transferred, it was imputed to you. Do you really believe that? Is Jesus really your Lord and Savior? And remember that Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you do not do what I say? This is where it has to start examining your beliefs, but it can't end there. Based on what Jesus said there, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? We also have to examine our actions. 
So it can't start, it has to start with examining our beliefs. It has to go toward examining our lives, examining our actions. And as you examine your heart, do you see, do you find the desire to obey God? And is that desire growing? As you examine, as you look back over the course of your life since, you, since the moment you were saved, do you see a progression, an upward progression, however gradual it might be? Do you see an increase in your desire to obey God? Abraham obeyed, but he obeyed imperfectly. But why did he obey at all? Because he had faith. Because he believed what God said. And true faith, true biblical faith, will act in accordance with its belief. For example, right now, every single one of you has faith in your chairs. How do I know that? Because you wouldn't sit in it if you thought that you were going to fall to the ground as soon as you sat on it. But you were confident that that chair would hold you, would hold your weight, and so you sat on it. You had faith. You had a belief, and you acted accordingly. That's the same way that biblical faith works. Does your faith produce submission and obedience unto God? And this isn't to say that you are saved by being obedient. Don't get me wrong. You are not saved by being obedient. Nobody has ever been saved by being obedient. It's not the cause of your salvation. It is the effect of of your salvation. It's not the fruit, it's not the root of your salvation, it is the fruit of your salvation. It it comes out because you have faith. So you're not saved by obedience. Let me give you an image and, and we'll kind of close with this. Let's say that you've got two trees right next to each other, and each one is bearing fruit, and you are starving. And so you go up to the first tree and you see that the fruit is, is kind of ugly. It's shriveled. It doesn't smell good. It doesn't look good. But you're hungry. And so you're going to take a bite of it. You, take, you, you, you unpeel it and you take a bite of it and it is horrible. It, it's so bitter. It's so revolting. The smell is just so disgusting. It's like sewage. It immediately causes you to, to vomit. It's just it's the most disgusting thing that you could imagine. Or let's say that you go to the other tree. And as you approach the fruit, you see that it is, it is beautiful. It, it looks, it's ripe. It's succulent. It has a, a, an amazing aroma. You can smell it. It's so sweet. It's going to be so good. You unpeel it. You take a bite. It's so good. And it's nourishing your body. It nourishes your body and, and totally satisfies you. Which of these two trees is a picture of your life? Are you producing good fruit? Are you acting in accordance with your belief, in accordance with your faith? Are you growing in your desire to obey God? Obedience is the practical, the the, the outward difference between knowing God and knowing about him, but refusing to yield to him. The important thing is, the important thing to see is, however weak or however strong your faith in God may be, the important thing to see is growth. Are you growing in your love for Christ? Are you growing in, in, in your love for Christ, in your desire to please Him? Are you growing in your, uh, in your Christ-likeness? Are you growing in your hatred towards sin? You may not, as you examine your life, you may realize that you, you may not have a faith that's as big as Abram's or as strong as Abram's. But take comfort in knowing that even if you don't have Abram's strength of faith, you have Abram's God. And that God's purposes and plans will not be thwarted. And that includes your sanctification. Plans for your growth in Christ's likeness. And he can build a great faith, a strong faith in you, just like he did 
in Abram. His plans will not be thwarted. He will ensure that his purposes are fulfilled. This is Abram's God, and this is our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you for the way that Abram's life illustrates the faith, the type of faith that pleases you. Lord, we pray that you would grow in us a great faith, a strong faith, a faith that is anchored in Christ in him, and that, that, uh, that seeks and pursues to honor him and to live for him and to act in obedience to him. Father, we thank you for your grace. We know, Lord, that none of us is worthy of your grace. It's something that we could never earn, that all of our hearts and minds would be strayed from you were it not for your grace. And so thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to, to demonstrate such great love, such great love for your people. Teach us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, to be humble. Teach us to act in accordance with our faith. Teach us to live for your glory and not our own. And for the glory of Christ, your Son. It's in his name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcasts.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.